0: Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to reimagine our future together, which I know sounds pretty ambitious. Luckily for us though, we've got a couple of brilliant people to walk us through it. First up, Ijioma Oluo on her new book, which examines the legacy of white male supremacy and then imagines a new white male identity free from racism and sexism. Then we've got New Yorker writer and historian Jill Lapore, who's going to tell us about the first company in America that tried to predict the future by using computers to figure out human behavior. Plus, we'll get a little dose of musical hope by way of the married duo The Banksons, who've been spreading joy all over the Internet. That is the plan. Our immediate future together is a fun-filled episode of LiveWire, which gets started right after this.
1: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry.
0: I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
2: Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love books, movies, television, music, art.
1: And I always want to talk about celebrity
0: gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Luke,
3: how are you?
0: I'm good. Are you ready to talk about the future this week on the show?
3: Uh, I I am looking forward to it. Oh,
0: I see what you did there. (laughs) Do you know that I probably have the worst instincts about the future of certainly anyone I've ever met? Years ago, I was sitting at this kind of fancy get-together, talking to a guy about this website that he was helping launch, where people could write messages to each other. Oh, no. And there was only a certain number of, like, characters you could use. And I remember sitting and thinking in my mind... This is going nowhere. Oh. And it was Twitter. Oh, no. Oh, so, anything <laughs> that I say about the future during this episode of LiveWire, you did take it with a grain of salt, knowing that those are my instincts. Gotcha. Uh, on that note, let's get the radio show going. Molly, are we recording?
4: We're rolling.
0: Okay. Take it away, Elena. <laughs>
3: From PRX, it's LiveWire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the LiveWire House Party. This week, with writer Ijioma Aluo, historian and author Jill Lapore, and music from the Bengsons. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of LiveWire, Lou... Thank you so much, Elena. Thank
0: you to everybody tuning into the show. This week we have a great show in store for all of you. And, of course, as we always do, we asked a question of the listeners this week. We're going to read some of those answers coming up here in a few minutes. The question was, tell us a small wish you have for the future. Um, How would you answer that question, Elena? What is a small wish you have for the future?
3: A small wish for the pretty Mm -hmm. near future is that this practice that's just started happening at my house will develop and continue. I don't know if you can see, I've, I've, I've put it in the zoom screen. Yes. This is a cat back here yes. sleeping on this chair and she's
0: this, which, t- which one of your cats is that?
3: That's QQ. Um, Okay. And she is this little tiny girl kitten that we got about two years ago, but she stayed very small. And we we walked her around on a leash when we first got her because she was so bad at going outside, but she wanted to. And she's been Uh leash free. But recently, she's been going on walks with me (gasps) around the neighborhood. This little black and white cat with a little mustache just trots uh, either right beside me or right in front of me and follows me around the neighborhood. And I, it's the, the cutest thing. We haven't gone super far, but we take like 10-minute walks together, and she loves it, and I love it. She wears herself out. And I think it's going to improve my reputation as a neighbor because it's super cool. That is, that's like a very cool pet trick. Now, just, I would say, stop
0: short of becoming the person who has the cat ride on their shoulder everywhere because that's just a desperate cry for attention.
3: No, I want that. I want to get her back on the leash and I want to take her on hikes and I want to get like a motorcycle and have her ride. I want all the, I want the cat and the baby Bjorn. I want it all. All
0: right. Okay. It's your future. You're allowed to imagine it however you want. (laughs) How about you? Um,
3: What's your small wish for the future? Well,
0: of course, I had a little trouble with this question because my brain was going to, like, world peace, Ugh. you know, and all of these big things that we all sort of hope for. Something, though, that's, I think, just right below that on the list is I really hope that in the future they invent a robot <laughs> that will put the duvet inside the duvet cover <laughs> for me. Because that is, like, block out a weekend.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just,
0: you're like in, sometimes you you go into the duvet cover, holding it, trying to get it up (laughs) into the corners. (laughs) You become one of those things
3: that let out in front of car dealerships, you're just like waving your arms from inside the duvet cover.
0: Those are called fly guys. Those are, that's the real name. Um, I hope the same robot also is trained to fold a fitted sheet into something that's not just like a weird mess pile.
3: Yes. That, that is a robot we all need right now
0: can you tell i was doing laundry right before the show (laughs) it's very fresh uh, in my mind um but yeah so those are those are some small hopes for the future like i said we're going to read some audience responses coming up here in a few minutes first though we've got to invite our first guest over to the house party although a guest is kind of misleading uh she's at this point basically like an honorary third host Uh, (laughs) she's been on the show four times to talk about her writing Uh, the last time was back in 2018. She was talking about a New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. Uh, and now she's got a new book out that Publishers Weekly is calling An Essential Reckoning. Mm. The book is titled Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Egioma Aluo. welcome back to Livewire. Nice to be here. Um, how did you arrive at the particular idea for this book?
2: It was really kind of born out of frustration. You know, I've been writing and speaking on issues of of race and gender for years now. And especially since 2016, there's been this kind of fixation on like, why are white men mad? What's this white man like they just fell from the sky? And what I wanted was people to understand the patterns to our society and why things are the way they are, the way in which, you know, I and many other people of color and women of color look at these things and we can recognize, we can see history and what's happening right now. I wanted I wanted everyone to really see that. So I decided to kind of, you know, paint that picture.
0: You use a phrase um, early in the book, works according to design. What, What does that exactly mean?
2: You know, it's a phrase that's kind of what I, many other people who do similar work say to ourselves, when we see these inequities and oppressions and, you know, outrages that are happening around the country. A lot of times people will say, how could this happen? Something's wrong. The system's broken. And what we keep reminding ourselves and what I want the reader to understand is this is actually the way our systems are designed to work. This oppression, this exploitation, this violence is actually baked into our systems. So it's not an aberration. It's the way it's supposed to work and it's the way it's always worked.
0: Do you feel like the people who set these systems up in place of, of white oppression were thinking of it in terms of white oppression in their own minds as they were building them, or were they thinking about it as just looking out for their own interests and everyone else's needs and rights be damned?
2: I mean, we are in a hyper-capitalist system. So first and foremost, the people with the most power, mostly white men, are a select few, who I don't think actually built this system Or, you know, or the beginnings of this system out of specific animus towards, you know, women or people of color. What they wanted was to make money and they wanted to exploit as many people as possible. But it's important to recognize that a story of power and oppression was written to get middle-class white men to do their part in making money for the richest and most powerful white men and to keep them rich and powerful. Really? And so it was an exploitation, right? And saying, oh, you know, your reward for doing this is that you're always going to do better than people of color, especially black people in this country. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have power over women. You may never get the power economically that you think you are due, but if we distract you and offer this, you'll make sure that things keep going the way they're going in order to uphold hypercapitalism. Mm-hmm.
0: There's so many parts of this book, Ijoma, where you kind of put words to something that I had had floating around in my brain, but hadn't really thought of in the kind of clear way that you describe it. One of the things is this kind of like hero complex. That a certain category of white men tend to carry around with them. Even you mentioned somebody in your extended family. Can you kind of talk about that? Because that was something I felt a a sense of, but couldn't really describe the way you do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The thing about, An identity that's built off of, you know, um, conquer, right? The ability to overcome and conquer other people means that that's kind of where your definition of manhood and success is tied up in. And, and we see this, right? In our stories, in our films of, you know, the lone white man who took on this great evil to save his family. And so often this idea is tied into manhood. And we see this politically. Popular politicians have to create this enemy that's coming for you and your family. What happens? What happens, though, is that when your manhood is tied to this definition, if there isn't an enemy, you have to create it. You have to have this sense of power so you can feel successful. And so like my relative in there, sometimes, you know, white men will seek out and say, you know, Muslims are out to get us or black people with guns are coming and they mean that they may not have seen a, a Muslim person in their neighborhood in a month. no one's going to their town. you know no one wants to mm-hmm. stop by their suburb and cause any trouble, but it gives that feeling that you're doing something that you're powerful that you're fulfilling these goals of white manhood and it's dangerous because these are real people that we're turning into enemies. These are real people that we are making into threats and denying you know, the full protection of the state because we've defined the people who need to be protected as who white men want to protect and the enemies as everyone else.
0: Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Ijeoma Aluo. Her latest book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Um, you say in the foreword, Ijeoma, of this book that your contention is not that every white male is mediocre, but that white male mediocrity is the baseline and that the systems are set up to essentially enforce and protect that. Um, what are what are some of those things that jump out at you about the way it's enforced and protected?
2: You know, I think we see this even in in the standard response to change or even the slogan Make America Great Again. What we're talking about, right, is a time where supposedly – Every white man, because we, we have to be honest, this promise is something made to white men, could just get a job, you know, it didn't matter what their skill set was, they could get a good job and they could feel comfortable and powerful. But the truth is, is A, it never worked like that. Uh, but B, it was often skewed that way to, to kind of reserve what there was, for white men by taking from other people. So time and time again, that same ease, that same access was never afforded to women and people of color. But the story was, is that we haven't deserved it. We aren't talented enough. We haven't worked hard enough. But whenever we say, let's, let's look at what the contributions of other people are. Let's change the way we do things to make things more inclusive. The response is now that's an effort that white men shouldn't have to put out. And so there's this idea that white men were born deserving health, wealth, well-being. They were deserving power. They were deserving to feel represented politically. They were deserving to see their bosses look like them, their presidents look like them, but they didn't actually have to do anything for it. And the thought that they would, anytime we have these efforts, and we see this around discussions around Me Too, right? The thought that a white man couldn't grab someone's butt at work the effort to relate to women in a way that wasn't sexualized was too much to ask. This is, this is also part of that mediocrity, the fact that you never have to investigate, you never have to try something new. You don't have to grow to accommodate other populations that are in your midst. And it's very dangerous. It's dangerous not only to women and people of color, but it's also dangerous to white men themselves who feel like they can't grow and change. And they actually can. And it really stymies everyone. It stymies us because we have to be held back in order to keep this impression that white men are successful. But it also stymies white men who may well want to be better than this.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, We've got to take a quick break here on the Livewire House Party. Uh, We're talking to Ijeoma Aluo about her new book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make zebiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to ZBiotics.com slash LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to ZBiotics.com slash LiveWire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Ijeoma Aluo about her latest book, uh, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. One of the chapters in this book, Ijeoma talks about white men kind of showing up at some sort of social justice movement moment and then centering themselves in the story immediately. Um, From your perspective, What would be a more helpful way for a a white guy to to be an ally in a situation like that?
2: You know, I would say, first and foremost, you have to make peace with what the end result of real progress looks like, which means at the end, you maybe don't get an award. Maybe you're not centered. Maybe this isn't your hero story. You have to make a piece with that in the beginning because a lot of times the idea, and this is the way we talk about it in media. How many of these movies have we seen, right? Of the clueless white person who meant well, but didn't know how bad racism was. And then he found out, and then he punched out the racist, and then he was the hero. And the whole arc is him, his growth, his redemption. You know, people appreciating him and what he does. That's not what real progress looks like because what we're talking about right now are systems that are, you know, harming and erasing and decentering populations of color and women. And so the white man doesn't get to be the center of that story. So making peace with that and realizing if I'm doing this right, I'm gonna be a footnote in this story, it's not gonna be about me. What would that actually look like? Because it's been me for so long. And so I think recognizing it's gonna look different and then recognizing that's gonna make you uncomfortable. That just the desire to do good doesn't actually make you one of the good guys. It's what you're Mm -hmm. doing and how you're learning and how you're investigating your actions. But often that's not how it's sold. When we talk about asking people to be allies, we spend so much time saying, this is how you're gonna benefit. This will be great, you're Mm -hmm. gonna be better. And whenever it's tough, whenever you don't feel like you are getting something out of it, maybe when you feel like not only are you not feeling better, but you found out that maybe you kind of suck, <laughs> then you want to leave because it's not what you were promised. And so we have to change the way we talk about this. But white men really need to come in with better, you know, with different and more accurate ideas of what this is going to look like in the end if they want to be useful in struggles for justice.
0: Another question kind of adjacent to that uh, uh is the question of emotional labor um because i i think obviously the 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 rise of the black lives matter movement caused a lot of white people to have to really kind of reassess where they where they fit into the world and if they were actually uh you know hurting people of color even if they didn't realize they were. And the first thing a lot of us did was turned to our black friends or other people and said, Hey, how should I do this better? And a piece of feedback that I heard from a number of people was, I don't know, like, I don't want to have to explain this to every single uh, white person I know. <laughs> so I guess <laughs> calling on you further to do some emotional labor, Ijeoma, um, What's a way in which people in your real life who are white, who want to try to understand how to be better in this, what's a way that they've approached you that has, has worked and what's a way that has not been so helpful as far as them trying to educate
2: themselves? You know, I would say that first and foremost, it's important where I see it's helpful is when people reach out and say, hey, you know, I was curious about this. So I went and looked up what you've said about this or what other people have already said about this. And does this feel right? you know, I'm just checking, this is what I'm going to, this is what I'm moving forward. Show them that you've done the work to mm-hmm. honor over 400 years of activism that, you know, we've been doing to talk about this and name it, right? Um, but also, I think it's important to recognize that we are trying to survive this. You know, I I I've had to point this out so many times. I'm not on a mission to create a kinder, gentler white person, especially not white men. I'm trying to survive. I'm trying to change these systems so they're not crushing people. Mm-hmm. And that means that I'm busy, you know. And so the idea <laughs> yeah. like that my end goal isn't your enlightenment. My end goal isn't your edification. My end goal is is my survival and the survival of other people of color and especially women of color in this, in this country. And so you take your work seriously and give me space to do mine. And maybe when something's happening, like the horrific, traumatic murders of black people by the state that we see all the time and especially this summer, your first instinct should not be, how do I figure out more about this so that I can be better? And then I'm gonna to turn to this black person, but what can I do right now to make this person's life easier? And so that means, is it of use for you to call me and say, can you explain these terms? Is it of use to me for you to say, can you list some books that you could look up? No, but maybe bring me some soup, you know, <laughs> like, you know, while I'm busy trying to do this. And so, you know, for me, a lot of the responses that I got over the summer as a human being, as a black woman that helped me, you know, it was just like my mom. You know, my mom is white, calling and saying, you know, Gemma, I'm doing all this reading. I want you to know. And I will be, you know, I'm taking this up with my union. We're going to see what we can do. But in the meantime, what's your favorite dish? Can I have it sent to the house? You know, what can I do? Because I know that you're grieving, you're working, you know, you're scared, you're tired. What can I do to take some of this weight off of you? And that was it. And she was like, "Okay, I'll talk to you later. And she would check it, you know, and that was it. You know, those, those bits of space and time recognizing that we're human beings, First and foremost, when this happens, we're hurting more than anyone else. We're scared and we're tired. And then look it up, honor our work and and then do the work within whiteness. I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that people are so reluctant to do. They wanna put a sign up, people wanna say that they they gave money to a thing, they wanna say they bought a book, but they don't actually wanna talk to their white peers. Mm -hmm. They don't actually wanna engage the systems they work in. And that's the work that needs to be done. You don't even have to tell us it's being done. We'll feel it. Um, When you feel like you have to go and report to the black people in your lives, people of color in your lives, what you're doing, chances are then you're not doing something that is impactful enough for them to feel it without you saying something. And maybe you need to refocus.
0: Uh, The conclusion of this book poses the question, can white manhood be more than this? Uh, Do you think it can be?
2: yes. I do, I mean, I don't know what it will take. I don't even know if we would call it white manhood in the end, that's up to that's up to white men, right? Mm-hmm. It's their identity and their ideology. But we're human beings, you know? I, I believe in the capacity of all human beings to change. These systems were built by people. These identities were built by people. We can change it. We just have to believe we can. We have to understand that whatever risk you're taking to give up the privilege and power you have, the identity you have, it has to be better than this. And it will be better than this. You just have to, you know, force through the painful growth and the uncomfortable parts of it. But I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe in people. You know, there's no sense in spending all of my time digging up all these painful histories and facts mm. that keep me up night if I didn't believe that we could learn from it and grow and change. I honestly do believe that it's possible.
0: That was Egioma ALUO. Right here on LiveWire, her new book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Ijeoma, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It was nice to see you.
2: It's great to see you again.
0: Hey, special thanks this episode to Nancy Wittig and Lisa Watson of Portland, Oregon. Nancy and Lisa are part of the LiveWire member community. Uh, who are generously supporting us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for that support because it's the only way that we're able to do the show. So a huge thanks this week to Nancy and Lisa for keeping LiveWire going. This is the LiveWire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. As we do each week, we asked the Live Wire listeners a question out on social media. The question was, tell us a small wish you have for the future. And uh, folks sent in their responses. Uh, what are they What are they saying, Elena? What are their small wishes for the future?
3: This is a small wish from Kira that I bet a lot of people have. Kira's small wish, that all my packages arrive in time for Christmas.
0: Yeah. I, I ordered a, uh, like a bed frame. Mm-hmm. And the range that they put on it for the delivery time (laughs) was basically four weeks. Oh, my God. (laughs) It could come any time from the day after I ordered it to
3: (laughs) 2016.
0: (laughs) And and then we went through all of the time when it was supposed to arrive, and then it still wasn't here. And then I went online, and they just said – you know, there's a pandemic. Relax, dude. And I was like, fair point. That's a fair point, actually. Like,
3: give you a break. I did all you know? my Christmas shopping crazy early. Whoa! what would you get me? I got you a bed frame. I hope you like it. <laughs> I need one. It will be here sometime between now and next Christmas.
0: <laughs> I'll just be sleeping on the floor until then. Uh, what else are the listeners hoping for in the future?
3: Here's one from someone named Ariana. Ariana's oh. small wishes. I wish Bath & Body Works three wick candles went back down to $6.50 on Candle Day.
0: <laughs> Highly specific wish.
3: I guess there's something I didn't know about this called Candle Day that is our beloved Ariana Donoville's favorite day of the year. We'll have to ask her about it later in the show. That
0: really checks out with her general kind of Martha Stewarty. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that Candle Day would be a high holiday in the Donoville household. All right, what's a, a, another small hope for the future from a Livewire listener?
3: Uh, how about this one from Sherry? Sherry's small wish for the future is, I can learn to be a better plant mom. I can't keep a plant alive to save my life. Again, this
0: might be the time to do that, right? Like that's a, that seems like a lot of the projects that we embarked on. I think of of personal improvement at the beginning of this pandemic. I would say very few of those for me have worked out. Same. (laughs) Um, I don't speak French. Because we're still ourselves, even though we're at home. Yeah. That being said, loving and caring for a plant, that seems like a thing you could— do maybe do a more effective job of if you're at home all the time. You winced when I said that, Elena.
3: Well, I didn't. I had the same goal as Sherry, and I had one survivor and up until the first frost, and now uh, I it's just so dead. It's right in my front door. It's a an unkillable plant called like a coleanthus and I just put all my Halloween plastic skulls in the pot with the dead plant so that maybe it would seem like decor. Um, I like
0: that. That's actually a good way to sort of adapt it into being part of the overall spooky vibe.
3: It's okay if you can't keep a plant alive, right? Like, you're still a good person. Absolutely. Uh, play classical music for him. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? I sang classical music for him and it died faster.
0: <laughs> I'm just like imagining you singing Wagner yeah, that's to right. a plant.
3: Kill the wabbit. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. One more quick one before we get to our next guest. Oh,
3: I love this one from Marion. Marion's small wish for the future to laugh so hard at a live crowded comedy show that I do a spit take. <gasps>
0: Those are the little moments that I don't think any of us realized were as precious as they
3: were oh, until yeah. we
0: weren't doing them.
3: The sound of like collective laughter, like a mm-hmm. bunch of people laughing in the same room at the same time, I cannot wait to feel that again. I can't
0: wait to look out on a slightly perplexed audience in the Alberta Rose Theater <laughs> after <laughs> one of my
3: classic Burbank jokes. I can't wait to hear a groan of the 300 <laughs> yes. people in the Alberta Rose Theater who hated my I Never pun. thought I would miss that, <laughs> yeah. but I do. I do too. <laughs> All
0: right, uh, speaking of... The Future. Our next guest has some very interesting thoughts about it, which she's developed uh, by looking into the past. Jill Lapore is a professor of American history at Harvard. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she is the author of the fascinating new book If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, uh, which tells the story of the data science firm that kind of pioneered the use of computer simulations to try to predict human behavior. Uh, the New York Review of Books calls it a plausible untold origin story for our current panopticon. I don't know what any of those words mean, Elena, um, but I'm very excited to talk to Jill Lapore, who we now welcome to the Livewire house party.
4: Hey, hi, you guys. Nice to see you.
0: Uh, this uh, book was totally fascinating and covering something I had zero previous awareness of, which happens a lot, I feel like, when I read your work. Uh, I'm curious... How how did you first hear about the Simulmatics Corporation? Like, when was the first time you heard the word Simulmatics? (laughs) Uh,
4: Yeah, it was some years after I heard it that I learned how to pronounce it. So I'm very impressed that you got it right on the first shot. (laughs) Excellent. Um, I've been practicing all morning. I'm
0: not even kidding.
4: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... In 2015, I had an assignment from The New Yorker to write about the history of polling because polling seemed to be in somewhat of disarray. This was, as you recall, uh, right around the time of the Brexit vote, which had been mispolled. And there was a lot of anticipation that the mm-hmm. 2016 election polls would be wrong. There was a big discussion about polling. So I read a lot of the history of polling. It seemed to me pretty clear that polling was being pretty fast replaced by data science or you know predictive analytics, like why would you bother to call people up and talk to them on the phone for ninety minutes and answer them a bunch of questions when you could just track their behavior online and extract their data and maybe even sell it? Like, what, like there's so much you can do with people's data. Um, so then I was really curious: when did that transformation begin? Because you know we know about you know Cambridge Analytica or Civis Analytics or you know there, we know about these political and data analysis companies now. But where did they start? And I I came across a kind of stray reference to this thing called the Simulmatics Project that was done in 1959 and 1960 for the Democratic National Committee, and then for um, the Kennedy campaign. And it just seemed really early to me, like, how are they doing data science in 1959 mm-hmm. and providing election advice to Kennedy in 1959 in that way. So I looked for the records of the corporation and I couldn't find them, but I did find that over at MIT, the guy who was one of the founders of the company had, had donated his papers, which hadn't been cataloged yet. And it was so interesting in a way that surprised me because I'm not a historian of corporations or uh, I'm not even especially a historian of technology. And um, so I decided I had to write a book about it.
0: By the way, if, if folks are wondering uh, who is being co-interviewed with Jill, it's Greta the Great Dane, who is,
4: <laughs> who's whining <laughs> a in the other dog. room, and I can't figure um, out why. Uh-oh.
0: Yeah. Uh oh. Yeah. Do you want to go check on her really she, quick? She, let
3: me see if I can just. Go. I can. Uh, I on. can try to hold One forth second.
0: on. I'll try to hold forth on symbolmatics myself, which Elena, I don't think, is going to be nearly as informed.
3: I will say, if you do want to read this book, I, I highly uh, recommend it. I also recommend the audio book. Because Jill yes. does all the voices. She does the voice of John F. Kennedy, it's... who we're going to hear about, and <laughs> like, uh, yeah. uh, LBJ.
0: and yeah, Jill, we're, we're going on about your incredible audiobook <laughs> skills. Like, I mean, I, I know mean, you had range. John
3: F. Kennedy. It's Oscar worthy. The... My John F. Kennedy. That's really all i got. That's really all I've got is Kennedy.
0: Let me just rewind a little bit, because uh, you were talking about trying to figure out what this Simulmatics thing was that was credited with... Uh, or at least they claimed the credit for having helped Kennedy win um, uh, his election. But I, I guess for people that, that that haven't read the book yet and don't really know, what was Simulmatics? Like, what were they trying to do?
4: Yeah, so the company's name, which is super weird and difficult to pronounce, is a mishmash of simulation and automatic. Simulmatics. And they thought that it would be a word like cybernetics. That would be the er term by which we would describe what came to be called artificial intelligence. But Simulmatics was sort of kind of supposed to mean the same thing, the automated simulation of human behavior. So um, my favorite sort of one-sentence description of what the company proposed to do came from It's stock offering when the company went public in 1961 and its mission statement was the company proposes to engage in the estimation of probable human behavior by way of computer technology. (laughs) I just felt like, what are they even, what are these people smoking? It's 1959, 1960, 61. Right. What are they going to, how are they going to do that? Like we could barely do that now. Right. Just, uh, yeah, the ambition of that. Computers
3: were like the size of shopping malls at that point. Yeah, right, right. Like an airport hangar.
4: (laughs) Um, yeah, and yeah. they didn't really have any data. Anyway, so what they proposed to do is kind of basically the the business plan of most companies today, right? They, where they want to kind of gather data about people, come up with a model of a population, simulate the behavior of that population, whether it's consumer choices or voting choices um, uh, or political action of, of another sort. And in order to be able to predict that, Act that behavior, and then um, advise about how you could offer targeted messages to that population to change its behavior. So if you think about if you think about it this way, if it's the 1950s and you want to predict human behavior with a computer, well, what could you possibly do? Really, the only thing you possibly do would be mm-hmm. try to predict an election, right? Because we you'd need a lot of data to have a mathematical model of human behavior. So, but democracies generate their own data because we have election returns and then we also have public opinion right. polling and then we have census data so they took all that stuff and they did quite brilliant work with these punch cards <laughs> put them into a machine wrote some code um, but they called their program the people machine because uh, there was this sort of like a slick advertising way to talk about what they were trying to sell which was a service to political campaigns and you know retailers we could we can predict how people will respond to your messages
0: and so they, they got hooked up with the Kennedy campaign because, uh, well, one, like you said, this was something that they could kind of measure, have a before and after with the election. And also one of the founders was sort of a very progressive guy, right? One of the SimilMatics founders really wanted to try to use this as a way of advancing kind of liberal causes.
4: Yeah. So um, if you think about the politics of the 1950s, so Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, is elected in 1952 and then reelected in 1956. And Democrats by 1960 are really desperate to get the White House back. And they've had very little success against Eisenhower because – Roosevelt's New Deal coalition from the 1930s has fallen apart. Roosevelt was able to bring Black voters into the Democratic Party. um, But Black voters left the Democratic Party uh, after 1948 when the Dixiecrat Party sort of splintered off because Democrats just refused to act on civil rights, refused to act on civil rights and continued to kowtow to Southern white conservatives. So uh, Eisenhower was able to pull Black voters back into the Republican Party. And Ed Greenfield, who was the founder of Similmatics, was an ad guy who'd worked on Democratic campaigns in the 1950s, and he was so frustrated, as so many liberals were. Greenfield thought if they could come up with a mathematical argument, if they could come up with really exciting proof that Black voters would make the difference in what were then called the doubtful states or the swing states, because black voters, mm. of course, are still disenfranchised huh. throughout the South. We should still call them the doubtful states, don't you think? Like, it's just better. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I don't think a lot has really changed.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> black voters are disenfranchised throughout the South, but there were a lot of black voters in the North and they voted. And so the whole point of the people machine was to convince the Democratic Party that black votes matter, that if the to, to run a simulation, a sort of an if-then program that said, if the party reaches out to black voters with a strong civil rights message, then black voters will vote for the Democratic candidate. Now, that said, like, it's 1960. Right. Think about what else was going on in 1960. There were sit-ins across the South, like starting in February, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins. Like, did you really need to build this giant people machine right. in order to figure out right. what right. Do black voters want? Well, I mean, geez, this is, like it's, it's such a sort of the mystification of the political ideas of women and people right. of color is a weird sub-theme of this whole story.
0: This is the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are talking to the writer and historian Jill Lepore about her new book, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. I, I thought it was interesting too, Jill, how much suspicion there was around computers Back then, considering there was like only a couple of them in the country, it seemed to loom pretty large in people's minds. Like they were really worried about jobs being taken, about, you know, candidates making decisions based on what a computer told them to do. Like, I'm proud of how suspicious people were about this stuff.
4: Think about the sensibility about computing from, you know, Dr. Strangelove in 1964 or 2001 in 1968. Right. There's an enormous suspicion of these giant machines that might control our minds or control our destinies, right? That is the default reaction. Uh, They're these giant scary things. Weirdly, the smaller they get, the more dangerous they are, but the less we're afraid of them when we really should be much more afraid Uh of them. There's this kind of weird paradox of computing. Um, So the 1960s are obsessed with thinking about our moment. Like there's all this futurism in the 60s, which is like, ooh, what will the world be like in the 21st century? And people write these essays and they make these predictions and it's like, you know, everybody's a Nostradamus. And they say things like, like the guy who founded Simulmatics, the research scientist who's at the head of it, says, we keep going this direction. By 2018, everybody will have their own personal newspaper. That will be really bad for politics because no one will be able to have common cause. So parties will die and get hollowed out.
0: (laughs) Really? I'm curious Jill cuz you obviously did so much research on this and so much thinking about data and how it's used did the writing of this book actually change anything about your personal behavior around like your technology and stuff or do you just is it way more front of mind for you now when you like turn on your phone and think about how everything's just being you know farmed out and sold off to all these different entities
3: Yeah
4: I think Yes, but I think the reverse is also true, and that is like my paranoia about that probably led me to the project, like made it. It, it sort of spoke to me, like even mm-hmm. that first day in the archives, because what became clear looking through this this political scientist at the old pool at MIT, looking through his papers, not just his records about working for Simulmatics, but all of his other research over the course of a long career going back to the Second World War, that he was trained in uh, to conduct psychological warfare, right? That's what behavioral science has its origins in, right? Psychological warfare is, is the work of, you know, figuring out how your enemy thinks, sending messages to your enemy, and, and influencing your enemy's views, changing them. You can largely with misinformation, but sometimes with information, right? You want to change their behavior. So um, somehow that really clicked for me. Do you know that... Um, I don't know. I, like I have this experience like at the end of a day when I've been like scrolling through the newspaper online and I don't know, you know, maybe watching a clip of something on YouTube and then also do whatever other things I'm doing, on whatever apps I'm using. At the end of the day, you sometimes feel like someone's been sort of messing with your brain, like as if you're in a 1960s like conspiracy yeah. theory Hollywood thriller. And that and, and to me that was yeah. like, oh, yeah. I had this like, aha moment in the arc. It's like, so, oh, because all this stuff comes from psychological warfare, like capture your attention, distract your attention, interrupt your thinking, send you a message, convince you to change your mind, make you act in a way that we would otherwise not act. Like that's happened to me all day long. No wonder I feel so messed up. <laughs> I mean like that for me was really yeah. illuminating in the archive. Cause then I thought like, and it starts with these guys. They're doing something that is, you know, theoretically so well intentioned. Here, trying to, you know, get the Democratic Party to take a stronger position on civil rights, but they're all trained in um, and entirely uncritical of psychological warfare. Um, that's the that's the work they did in the Second World War. That's what they've been doing in the Cold War. So much of the Cold War is about that, right? The the war of ideas. You know, we talk think about the arms race, but it was called also the mind race. That. Somehow from you was like a missing link in how I understood what comes down to us by way of Silicon Valley and social media and you know that interference with your way of kind of controlling your own sequence of thoughts. Uh, I don't know, it just explained a lot.
0: Well, Jill Lepore, thank you so much for taking the time to be on LiveWire today. We really appreciate it.
4: Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care, bye-bye.
0: That was Jill Lepore right here on the LiveWire house party. Uh, She joined us as part of the Portland Book Festival, and her latest book is If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, and it is available now. I am Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like Cinnamon Churro Chai and Blueberry Cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've been sort of talking about the future this week on the show. Um, but let's take a moment now to be present. Uh, this is like the hardest thing for me, mm-hmm. Elena, ever. Yeah, me ever. too. Yeah. It's hard. So this is good. This, it's a good practice, though, to try, right? Mm-hmm. Our musical guests this hour, they're an indie folk duo. They are a married couple. Their latest work explores this idea of living fully even in kind of moments of fear, you know, uh, like the way it feels all the time, <laughs> every second of every day. Uh, the New York Times said that their music translates the agonies and ecstasies of lockdown into a cosmic hootenanny. Mm. So let's start the hootenanny now. Abigail and Sean of the Banksons, welcome to the Livewire House Party.
5: Woo-hoo! Oh, thank, thank you. you it feels amazing to be here yeah. thank you I so much like my
0: mood has already improved mm-hmm. just from the sound check we were just doing with mm-hmm. you both
6: <laughs> <laughs> well you throw a good party
0: man <laughs> you guys are exuding so much positivity and energy and and i guess it's uh not a surprise that you put out this amazing song that that people are really kind of going crazy for on the internet how, how did this keep going song like start out as an idea
5: yeah, we uh uh you know, we were working on a, a theater piece doing the music for a, a play in Louisville when uh the uh the shutdown happened. Um, and then we uh, we just scooted up to my folks in Dayton a couple hours away and then um, the Black Lives Matter protests began and we were trying to do what we could from there and uh but we really didn't know if we'd ever work again. You know, <laughs> like it was like everything we do is live and uh everything yeah. stopped. But the uh, man who runs the theater in Louisville, the Actors Theater, Robert, uh, called us up and asked us if we would make a thing for their online season. And, uh, you know, and he is, a, he is a black man and a lot of his staff are BIPOC folks and they were marching every day in Louisville and then trying to keep their theater alive at night. Um, and he said, like, as bad as things are right now, this was back in the summer, he said, come the fall, come the winter, it's going to be so dark and so bleak and so he said like will you please just make something for us that helps us here and this is part of a hour-long piece that we made for them
0: this song is pretty much improvised right uh, do you even know what we're about to hear
6: who knows Jeez, ah, wow. I love it <laughs> Maybe you'll sing a verse I yeah. don't
0: know mm. All right Well this is exciting I think This is definitely A first of a kind uh, For our show But yeah. we're really excited To have you here um, uh, This is the Banksons uh, Performing the Keep going song yeah.
6: Well, oh my goodness, here we go. We're on the live wire show. We've never been on NPR, and we've heard it stretches really far. It goes out over the ocean, over rivers and streams. And I hope that so far away from me, you can still feel what I mean, and that you can feel reaching Oh this is the keep going, keep going keep going, keep going on, keep going on song this is the keep going, keep going keep going, keep going on Keep going on song, this is the keep going keep going going on, Going on, J-O. this is a keep going keep, keep going, keep going, keep going, K-O-ing K-O-ing on, b- keep going on, well, Abigail, keep going on, Well, I'm Abigail, and this is Sean, going, and we're so glad that you've turned this on and that you've welcomed on, us into your home, and you are keep welcome keep going, into go our go go, home. We're in Middlebury, Vermont now. Vermont. We were in Dayton, but now we're House. At mom's we're at my mom's house. We were in Louisville going on. when COVID hit going on. And we packed our three-year-old into a it. car And we drove go. and drove we keep far keep We drove here on. And keep we've been so lucky on. and blessed to be safely here And we thought we'd be here for like ten days on. Absolute keep tops
5: What did we know? What did we know? What did we know? Keep keep we thought
6: we knew a lot, we keep thought we knew a lot. Ooh, so much. Keep going on. Hey, this is a keep going, keep going, go on, keep, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on son. This is a keep going, keep going, keep going, on. Keep going on son. And we've been mostly healthy. Going, we've been OK. Are you OK? Are you alright? Are you okay? Are you alright? Are you okay? I hope your body is whole tonight. Oh, and if you're If your heart is breaking, I hope that it's breaking open And if your breath is shaking, I hope that it's shaking through And I hope, and I hope, hope that you've watched a lot of really great television Like a lot of it, and I hope that you find a hand lotion That actually makes your skin feel better And I hope that you have enough to eat I hope you've been getting enough sleep And I hope that you have enough good company or enough good memory to last you a long time Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep keep going, going, keep going, going on, keep going on, on, on so This is a keep key, go, go, on, keep going, keep going on, on, keep going on song Let's bring some joy into the room, why not? We could try it, we could try it, or some rage I rage is a fire and it cleans my mind out and it makes me ready to listen And I pray my pain is a river that flows to the ocean that connects my pain to yours and I pray oh I pray oh I pray that my happiness is like pollen yeah. and it flies to you and it pollinates your joy oh boy oh boy is that possible We don't know, we are making this up as we go We have to make it up as we go The keep going song, the keep going song Oh, we are making it up, we're making it up as we go Keep Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on Keep going on song And I pray that when we meet again that the world has changed into the world that we are imagining now together. And I pray that the world has become the world that we are planting inside of ourselves for each other, and for our ancestors, and for our kids. Ooh, and we're going to start. We're going to start. It's a rough beginning all I've got It's just a rough beginning to offer you we just gotta start we're just gonna start by singing some songs in a tiny little space together we're just gonna play some songs for you and we hope that when we hear each other that you will feel just a little bit less alone we will feel a little bit less Less alone alone in the work and and in the hurt and we will be together tonight somehow wherever this is Whenever this is, wherever this is, whenever this is, we'll sing the keep going, keep going, keep going keep going, keep going on. Keep going on. So we'll sing it together. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on. we'll sing it for the live wire, for the house party. We'll keep going, keep
0: going, keep going on keep going on. Hey. The Banksons doing the keep going <laughs> song right here on LiveWire. I think that is exactly what everybody needed. I can speak for myself on that. Abigail and Sean Bankson, thanks again for being on the LiveWire house party.
5: Bye. Thank Happy you.
0: holidays. Bye. That was the Banksons right here on the LiveWire house party. Their album, The Keep Going Song, live from our home at the end of the world, is available online now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of what we have in store for next week. Uh, We're going to be chatting with the hilarious comedian Ian Carmel. Also, we're going to talk to radio host Al Letson and talk to a very funny writer, our friend Caitlin Kunkel, Mm. one of the authors of New Erotica for Feminists. And we're also going to have music from Laura Gibson, as well as getting your answer to our listener question, which is where our marketing manager, Ariana Donoville comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. Now, earlier in the show, we were reading some listener uh, submissions and there was someone named Ariana. And that person had a very specific (laughs) hope for the future that the uh, Bath and Body Works company would bring back some kind of candle sale. That couldn't have been you, could it?
1: I mean, no, of course not. No, not at all. pure, Pure coincidence. All right.
0: Just checking. Hey, what's the listener question this week?
4: The question is, in a sentence, what is your dream life? (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, man. What's the best way for people to send in their responses to that question?
4: Listeners can submit their answers on our social channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LiveWire Radio, as well as on Facebook.
0: All right. Thank you, Ariana Donoville. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Igioma Oluo, Jill Lapore, and the Banksons. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to
3: Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Laura Hadden is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville, the candle queen, is our marketing associate. <laughs> A. Walker Spring composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And she mixed this episode.
0: Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Matt Janke of Seattle, Washington. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear LiveWire,